abstinious, marked by restraint, especially in the consumption of food or alcohol, also reflecting such restraint. Here's a sentence. The company's founder is almost as widely known for his Spartan and abstinious lifestyle as he is for his business acumen. Abstinious. And what I wanted to do, I wanted to look at trauma and grief and what it does to our brains. So I went over to Neuronation and began to read about the brain on grief. Now, we know there's many tragedies that could occur in someone's life. And an article I was reading, it talked about the types of tragedies, illness, death, terror attacks, natural disaster. And then the article went on to talk about how people deal with these and they cope with them and they cope with them differently. Some people immediately get depressed and discouraged and some people start to grieve only months after the tragedy happens. And some really never begin to recover from the effects of the tragic event. And then there are some people who go back to normal only after a short amount of time after these. So this article in Neuronation said there are four types and the scientist George Bonanno wanted to find out. He wanted to look at people who had experienced tragic events and he wanted to find out how they were dealing with it. And he, and he figured out that there were some people who dealt with tragic events in different ways. And then he wanted to see if he could find a non-biased comparison. So he looked at people who had experienced the 9-11 terror attacks from up close, meaning they had lost a loved one. And he interviewed and examined them for a period of two years. And this is the results that he came out with. There were four different types of individuals or responses when getting over a traumatic experience. Number one was the chronic type, and that was 29% of the participants in the study. And what he said is that this type of crisis management is characterized by a permanent psychological or emotional damage resulting from a tragic event. This group shows substantial stress even two years after experiencing a tragedy. The second type was experienced by 23% of the participants, the healed type. And the healed type, people of this group, seem to have recovered from their initial symptoms that were caused by the traumatic event, in this case the 9-11 attacks, within two years. Three was the delayed type, and that was 13% of the participants. The delayed type, according to the scientist, didn't experience any significant symptoms at first. After some time, however, certain symptoms started to occur, hence the delayed type. The time span between the attacks and the people experiencing first symptoms ranges from a few days to several months. And finally, the fourth group. This was called the resilient type. And the resilient type, he summarized that as people who were in the resilient group. And he said the term resilience here meant a certain psychological resisting power which provides people with the necessary tools to cope with catastrophic tragedies. So the people in this group only suffered from minor symptoms or even no symptoms at all after witnessing the horrific 9-11 attacks. But what was different and the deciding factor that determines whether a person experiences painful symptoms, one through three, or gets over tragedies quickly, number four, 
it seemed that these people, he summarized, the amygdala in the brain is a key deciding factor. The amygdala is responsible for our assessment of our surroundings. Now, he was saying that the amygdala would scan out the surroundings looking for danger and puts the body in an alarm mode and if they find danger. And once it's in the alarm mode, it's helpful and it protects us from dangers around them. But now, he also argued that the amygdala can be oversensitive and detect danger in harmless surroundings and even ring the alarm even if there's no danger around. People with highly sensitive amygdalas are therefore at risk to suffer from severe symptoms after a traumatic event. Traumatic events are not uncommon in our society, and on a large scale we experience them and we carry on the four types. Yet when they occur in our lives, in our day-to-day -day lives, how do we carry on? You see, he studied people who were involved in 9-11, but yet it is not always a 9-11 that brings out tragedy and trauma. And tragedy and trauma occurs on a daily basis. So if you haven't experienced tragedy or if you haven't experienced trauma, you might know someone who has and your time will come. But keep your head up. When the results are bad, look up and you may find inspiration in the journey. Welcome to the Stephen Thompson Experience. This is Stephen Thompson. I am here today to have a discussion with you about the best in you, talking about hard topics, difficult things, often challenging information, but I want to process it together. I'm looking at the music of Tupac Shakur, and today we're looking at Keep Your Head Up. Keep Your Head Up by Tupac Shakur. Keep Your Head Up was a single on Tupac's album, and I really enjoyed this album. I remember listening to keep your head up in college all the time. When I was on the debate team, I used to go to debate tournaments and I would keep Tupac. I had a tape, CD player, maybe it was a CD player at the time, and I had Tupac's album at the time and I would listen to the song. And I want to look at the song today and I, want, I could really do like five episodes on keep your head up because there's so much inside of these lyrics that make a lot of different points and maybe I'll come back but what I want to look at this one today and, and the song is about women and it's about how we treat women in our society and there's a lot of contradictory principles both in Tupac's own life and both in our lives on how we, we, we treat women we can say well how can you talk about treating women well and then use misogynistic lyrics and I don't want to get into that debate because I think as you see in the music He's wrestling through that too. And we're all wrestling through with our thoughts and our words and how we carry ourselves. And I don't want to adjudicate that right now, like abstinious. I'm going to restrain from adjudicating language, uh, intent, but I really want to look at the deeper work, the, the subconscious, you know, the cursing, those sorts of things are ego, like the first thing you see, but there is always something underneath that. It's never about the cursing. It's always about something else. It's about the story. I want to look at that in these lyrics and in these songs, and there's a deeper message. And I think that deeper message will allow us to move forward in a very powerful way and be able to move forward in compassion with other people around us, both in our own personal lives and in our leadership and in our employment and in our day-to-day. -day. 
if we really begin to look at the deeper messages that are going on in some of these lyrics. So with that, this is what stu stood out to me today. These lyrics. And if we don't, we'll have a race of babies that will hate the ladies that make the babies. And since a man can't make one, he has no right to tell a woman when and where to create one. So will the real men get up? I know you're fed up, ladies, but keep your head up. It's always interesting when we, we, we talk about the abortion debate. Now, I'm not here again. I'm not going to adjudicate abor abortion right or wrong. But when we do adjudicate the abortion debate, and we see it right here, we talk about it in the context of a woman. When and where to create one. Now, in many cases of abortion, when a woman is going to have one, it usually doesn't come about as the result of an in, in fertility treatments. Correct? I've not seen the case where a woman goes and has IUI or IVF and gets pregnant and makes a decision to abort the baby. The decisions usually adjudicated in abortion are usually around a man and a woman. A man impregnating a woman. But we never hear about the man. Like, what is the man's role in this story? Why is the woman left out there to take the heat? Pro-choice, not pro-choice. At the clinics, you see the women walking in and being yelled and screamed at. Where is a man? And when he says, will the real men get up? See, there doesn't even seem to be a man in this picture. Even in the debate. So, like he says... Where are the real men standing up? Standing up for these women, any women, in any situation. I think we need to look at that and examine the gaps. It's really easy to get on one side or the other side of the issue and actually miss what is going on inside of the issue. How, that, how we arrived at this point. We arrive at a pregnancy because a man impregnated a woman. We marginalize a woman immediately for abortion, or we start the discussion over abortion because of a woman. And then I think it spins straight to marginalization and not supporting her. And I just want to look at that aspect. And there's many people who want to argue about right or wrong of abortion. I'm not talking about that. I want us to focus, I want us to restrain abstinious restrain from that consumption the right or wrong consumption I want you to restrain from that and I want us to look at the root cause and look at that and examine it now now Celia was a 19 year old slave 1850s in Missouri and she was being raped for years by Robert Newsom. He was a widower in his 70s. And he purchased her when she was 14. At the time, she had already had two of Robert Newsom's children. And these were sired in the act of rape. She tried very hard 
to end these rapes. Talk to his children, older children. They didn't pay attention to her. She was being courted, dated, by a slave. His name was George. Celia became pregnant a third time from Robert Newsom. George pleaded with her him to stop abusing him. Celia warned Newsom. She said, I'm going to hurt you if you come into my cabin again. She asked his two adult daughters again to help. Please stop. Please stop your father from coming to rape me. In fact, by this time, her two adult daughters, well, Celia's children were those two adult daughters, their siblings. Then came June 23, 1855. Newsom came into Celia's cabin and tried again to rape her. Celia took a stick and bashed his head in with it and killed him. She then pushed his body into a roaring fire in the cabin's fireplace. And then the next day, his bones carried out. Now what happened next is, of course, Celia was arrested and along came her legal case, known as the State of Missouri versus Celia, a slave. And this dispute played out for years. Now the law was, in 1855, it was a crime for a woman to be raped. In fact, the Missouri law was this was a crime to take any woman unlawfully against her will and by force, menace or duress, and compel her to be defiled, allowing women to argue self-defense in resisting such assaults. So, that was Celia's defense. She, Her lawyers pointed to that statue that said that it was against the law for a woman to be raped. And then it also said that a woman could then argue self-defense. But... Did that law apply to an enslaved woman? Her court-appointed lawyer argued this. He argued, he asked the circuit court judge, William Hall, to instruct the jury that a slave master had no right to rape a slave and that slaying could be considered justifiable. The judge refused to give the jury those instructions. The judge instead told the men on the jury, 12 of them, it says, If Newsom was in the habit of having intercourse with the defendant who was his slave and went to her cabin on the night he was killed to have intercourse with her for any other purpose, and while he was standing in the floor talking to her, she struck him with a stick, which was a dangerous weapon, and knocked him down and struck him again and again after he fell and killed him by either blow, it is murder in the first degree. Celia was executed. She was hung for that. She tried to appeal to the Supreme Court. Denied. She tried to, to stop this. Right? We all heard it. A good person with a gun stops a bad person, but a good person with a stick gets executed. If you were a woman, 
and you are a slave. Yet, here's the principle here. You make a decision on what you will tolerate, and you will be assertive in your career and in your leadership. There, there will be times where you will have to make a stand. Now, I'm not saying you're going to kill somebody, but what I'm saying is this. There will be a ground where you have to stand, and you can decide if you want to give in to people or you want to defend yourself and be assertive. But you see here, what happened? Something to consider this. Sometimes when the process isn't followed, people will take matters into their own hands. And whose fault is it? You see, there were systems that were designed to protect Celia. Well, not to protect Celia. They were designed to protect other people, but... There are systems in places, systems that were supposed to give justice. Like this idea of justice is like putting a program, an algorithm for a computer. You write the algorithm, the computer spits out your data. And you're beginning a coding language and you learn the first thing you program. The first algorithm you write is to write hello world. And you put in your signs, then you press enter, and hello world pops out. And that's supposed to way that's the way it's supposed to be with justice. You put in a crime and justice will come out. But in this case, justice did not come out. And even today, justice does not come for some people. But the idea is to keep your head up. And for those of us, let's consider this and be empathetic about the victim. You see, I hear sometimes people say, don't be the victim, or you live with the victim mentality. Let's look at this a bit differently. If you are not the victim, then don't say that. Don't be a victim, or this person is living with the victim mentality. Because guess what? People are victims. People don't choose to be victims. No one goes to a job board and signs up to be assaulted or signs up to be raped or signs up to be harassed. Those aren't the job descriptions that people are filling out applications for. A person is filling out an application to come to work to do a task. Maybe they want to be an administrative assistant or a, a digital marketing expert or a computer programmer or a rocket scientist, or an engineer. That's what they're signing up for. That's why they come to work. That's what they want to do. We should allow them to do that. Now, throughout time, people are hurt. And we have to start there. Start with that. You may have a hurt person in front of you. And your responsibility, when you are confronted with a hurt person, is to help them keep their head up and redirect themselves into a positive direction that's aligned with their dreams and goals that they presented to you. Your responsibility is not to adjudicate 
the event that occurred to her or him, if it's right, if it's wrong, if you caused it, if you didn't cause it. Let me stop here for a second and just kind of riff on a few things. I've heard many people say that, you know, women are dressed a certain way and and they need to show restraint in how they dress. First of all, any man would read the Bible and say the Bible gives us a spirit of power, love, self-discipline, self-control in other versions. So first of all, it doesn't a woman how she dresses does not give you the right to violate her either with your eyes or with physically. And to therefore blame her for that? Uh-uh. We have self-restraint. We have a spirit of self-control. As men, we have spirit of self-control. That means it's always our fault. It is never a woman's fault if they dress inappropriately or to you inappropriately. A woman has a right to carry herself the way she wishes to carry herself, okay? We don't have a right to decide that her dress is a permission slip. It's not. A permission slip is a woman giving you permission, saying something, okay? That's it. That's in my mind. That's what it is. You ask somebody permission, they say yes or no. Then you move on. Okay, that's how it's supposed to work. And in a workplace, if you do something inappropriate, the systems in place are designed to protect people. They're not meant to marginalize people. This is when you have a system, when you have a bureaucracy, when you have paperwork, when you have forms, and someone, there never is a he said, she said in these situations. There is a process and you need to follow that process. And this is when you need to have systems and processes. Time and time again, I see these companies that have HR representatives, that have handbooks. And a woman comes and makes a claim against a man and they said it's he said, she said. No, it may be he said, she said, but your job is to go get the book, the manual that says investigation. That says witnesses. That says paperwork you fill out. That says third party will verify. That is what you need to do. It is not your job or role or responsibility in that room to say this is he said, she said. Now you follow the process. Okay? If you are designing a new building. I believe you need a creative, collaborative process where everybody is involved. And you might not necessarily lead micromanagement or a system. That's debatable. But in these systems, when something like a tragedy occurs or someone is hurt, you need to break the glass and follow your system line by line, minute by minute. And then at least this person gets a chance at justice. And justice is not in one person's hands. It's in a process that was developed over time that was hopefully will administer some sort of justice. Now we see that process followed all the time. Celia followed that process and it failed her. And that's when we got to begin to change how we view institutions. 
When the process fails us, we've got to make changes. So, keep your head up. You know, I would argue that even though the results were unjust, her experience awful, I believe Celia is a hero today. Her master died a rapist. History will not judge him as a hero. History will not remember him as a noble plantation owner. History will remember him as a rapist. And Mr. Newton will have to stand before the creator of the universe and explain that. I'm not sure what will happen. We could guess. I'm not the creator of a universe, but would you want to walk in front of the creator of the universe and explain that the last act of your life was raping a woman? How do we want to die? What do we want to be known for at the end of our lives? You see, Celia was heroic and justice failed her. But in our workplaces, in our day-to-day, -day, we go through events, we can make decisions of where we find our inspiration in the midst of terror, trauma, and horror. Sometimes our inspiration is found in our journeys, not so much in our results. And you stay on your journey by keeping your head up. And you continue to walk, you continue to move forward. And for those of us who are walking in that trauma, who are walking in that injury, I hope that you know that I'm someone who supports you. And if you have people who are walking in that journey and they are in front of you, take time to be sensitive to that journey. Put your opinions down, okay? Put them down and see a person. You see, there's a subtle difference. An opinion is something that is written down on a piece of paper. And it's changed and it's erased. It's spell checked. You go and you find additional information, additional research. You change your opinions over time. But a person that's standing in front of you, think about this. That person was carried in the womb for nine months. And perhaps there was a, a baby shower for that person. There was a mom, there was a dad, there was gifts that were purchased. There was joy when that person came into the world. There are people who love that person deeply, who care for them. Some would say even would die for them. And they're standing right there in front of you. And when that person is standing there in front of you, they might be broken or shattered or in pain. Look at them. Look in their eyes. And then put your ideology on the side. And for that very moment, pick the person. Consider thinking about and picking the person. Or knowing the difference between the person in front of you and what that person has experienced. And maybe we can abstain, at least for a time, from some of our opinions and look at the person in front of us. This has been Stephen Thompson, and this is the Stephen Thompson Experience. This is what I want you to do right now. I want you to look at the sky, and I want you to say, I am grateful for this.
And then I want you to say something you're thankful for. Then I want you to look down and put your feet on the ground and feel the ground underneath you. Feel this moment. This is the moment that you have and all that you have around you and be thankful for it. Be thankful that you have the ability to listen to my podcast. That means that you have access to the internet. That means you have a cell phone. That means you have a computer. That means you have access to opportunities that other people do not have. Take advantage of those opportunities that you have and use them to the best of your ability. Leverage them in a way that brings hope and compassion into the world. Don't leverage them in a way that brings pain, hurt, and marginalization into the world. You are a talented individual. You were put here with gifts, talents, and abilities by the creator of the universe. And we hope, and I hope, and I support you in our journey, all of our journey, through this life together. This is Stephen Thompson, and this has been my experience.